0: I think that life goes on is how life operates. It's relational, adaptive, committed to its own survival. Life goes on is what is always going right. I am Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, asking everybody our one question. With all that seems to be going awry, what could possibly go right? And from time to time, I take the bait and do it myself. So uh, here I am with some scouting comments at the end of October in 2021. When last we spoke, I was working hard to clear out ambient anger from my mind and heart, a five-year buildup of piss-off triggered by the realization that farmers on our best farmland couldn't be out in the field because fighter jet pilots from the air base in Oak Harbor trained incessantly overhead. I realized that there is no cultural workaround, no parallel healthy world that we can create, that if the dominant system wanted something you have, even if it's peace of mind, it got it. So I got mad and I stayed that way throughout the entire Trump administration. From this determination to reclaim my peace of mind, I've been studying polarization in myself and in our society. Is it a bug or feature of capitalism? If I let go of my anger, do I let the conditions I find abhorrent persist? Does the anger itself motivate or blind me or both? Uh, Or all of the above? Our guest list for what could possibly go right now includes people with wisdom and smarts about mediation and negotiation and conflict transformation and cognitive traps. And um, uh, so I really wanted to bring this uh, inquiry to our little clubhouse here where we're asking our cultural scouts to look out there over the horizon for us and tell us what they see. Because I feel like if the horizon is littered with these, you know, sort of like it's it's got like barbs and IEDs and all these things uh, spread out over the landscape that we're trying to traverse in order to, to bring forth a healthy world. Uh, yeah, so these uh, polarization is like a set of landmines on a landscape that we have to traverse and how are we gonna do it? Uh, So I attended a conference just this uh, week called Othering and Belonging. Uh, It's an amazing conference exploring, like, what does it take to belong, to include, to cease othering others, uh, to even see beyond the others. So anyway, one of the speakers is somebody I had hoped to have on our podcast, but she's podcasted out, is Arlie Hochschild. And I love some of her insights. She had listened. She had gone for five years to listen to the the lament of the lives of a people, of a community in Louisiana. And, um, and one of the ways her explanations, you know, she said, I went there to listen and I was shocked because I was in a different world. But one of the things she brought back for us is that these people feel like the economy left them behind that, that they were playing by the rules and they were able to have a decent income for their family. And then that stopped being the case and feeling a loss. They asked, who did this to us? You know, they went out to try to find someone to blame. Uh, They had a sense that our way of life has been stolen from us. We didn't just lose it. It wasn't an accident. We weren't at fault. So who was the thief? And then they, they started to think, oh, it's the federal government with their regulations. They closed down our industries. They um, And so they started to distrust the federal government. Um, and then they would think, oh, the liberals took me. Uh, they looked down on me. So if you have um, shame and distrust enter into a system and an enemy is identified, disaffected, and dissed people will look for a new identity that provides what their old identity provided, which is safety, belonging, and, um, and identity. And so enter QAnon, you know, I mean, she she was able to reveal the pathway that leads people to um, flock to something that gives their life meaning. Um, and so Arlie and, and the others at the conference said emphatically that if we lose trust in institutions and in one another, our ability to solve the problems we face Together will evaporate, maybe has evaporated. And with the level of civilizational threat right now, we need to soften the animosity and find cracks where the light comes in. So, bridging is like preventive social medicine. I just want to share a couple of things she suggested. This is, I'm no. Expert in this, but she's she she talked about listening and, listening and listening and listening and listening with curiosity, not listening to pounds, not listen. You know, basically, one of our guests, William Yuri talked about the first stage in any negotiation is what he calls going to the balcony. You step outside of the situation and above it so you can scan the horizon, so you can scout. Uh, and um, in our interview, he said, you know, that's actually you know, something like 90% of the work is to unhook from your reactive self so that you can actually see what's going on. So a lot of it was listen, 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 listen. And um, and then relationships first. And I, I I remember learning this years ago about how different negotiations are in the United States for business people in the United States and in Europe, because in Europe, they would it would all be relationship. And then someplace around dessert and coffee, there might be a mention of some business deal. And, you know, Americans just, we just get down to business right away. And and so we really need, if we're going to be a people, be a we the people solving our problems together, we really need to be in relationship with one another. And that takes, oops, a lot of listening. And then she said to, to you know we when we think about polarization and I've done this too you know you go for like the the sort of the, the most vivid representation of the person who's the furthest away from you you know let's say the QAnon shaman you know and so we try to like think about how are we going to bridge to that person but you don't trust you don't pick the the uh, toughest cookie um, you find the persuadable people there's persuadable people. Um, people of goodwill and people who are intelligent, but who just hold a different view, and they are they are not represented by the extremes at all, and don't even see themselves as represented by the extremes. And those are the people you can talk to, and they'll translate for you. Um, you know, it's sort of like like you know, sending a message down the line. Hopefully, not too much what they used to call Russian telephone. Um, and then she said, you do some symbol stretching. You Watch your jargon. You know, it's like like <laughs> we're just like the 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 left is so full of of, of jargon. Like, uh, you know, you spend a while trying to understand what the word intersectionality means, and when you finally get it, you can use the word as if it has meaning to other people who haven't studied it. You know, so you don't you stop using your jargon, and you listen for what are the words that have meaning there, and you just you just stretch the meaning. You just stretch it a bit. You don't contradict it. So, you know, freedom from government in intrusion in your way of life could be um, freedom from, you know, toxic latent fish from your lake because it's an unregulated dump for some toxic chem- chemicals. That freedom can, can both mean regulation and the lifting of regulations. You know, so you, as one of the speakers said, and somebody I hope will be on our podcast, um, Amanda Ripley said, you complicate the narrative um, you you know because if you have a, a binary like it's either A or B then you're stuck then you are polarized but if you have A B C D and maybe E um, because all of them are relevant because E con- you know links to B uh, which links to C and A uh, then you're you're actually your mind you're entering a different part of your mind so I mean I find this stuff completely fascinating and really not just for sort of academic reasons. At all, really, but because I know that we have to be able to solve our problems together, um, and that's another thing that Arlie said is that you rebuild the connective tissue in a community through leaders of institutions. You know, whether it's the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, or whether it's you know the 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 food bank and the um, Chamber of Commerce. You know, just all of the the institutions. Uh, or different churches, uh, that as they, as people who are leadership in those institutions, build relationships, then if when trouble comes, they can talk to one another, they may not agree about things, but they can certainly talk to one another. So to me, these are, you know, this is sort of like, it's, it's a combination of my inner work, and my outer observation of society. And those two are very linked for me, because I do, you know, I just, it's sort of like the context of my life is that I, I'm here to help, <laughs> and uh, that we're, you know, uh, we have some big work ahead. Uh, so. I think that my inner de-escalation of polarizing forces may be bearing some fruit, or maybe it's just a shift in the wind. um, But for some reason, I find a greater openness locally to ideas I've tried to spread before on climate resilience, local agriculture, affordable housing. Um, And somehow or another, it seems like something is unblocking things and we're making progress. Our local farmers and ranchers and food security groups have have banded together and are working with our state representative on legislation that will grow our capacity collectively to feed ourselves, you know, the productivity and prosperity of our farmers. And food and farming, I think, is one place where you really can bridge, you know, uh, agriculture. Um, and uh, the, guy who, <laughs> the guy who grows my annual supply of chickens, uh, a la Joel Salatin, uh, he sees the world through completely red colored glasses, but we meet over meat. Um, we really have a lot of respect and appreciation for one another. Um, and then in another area, my small town, uh, prompted by high school students inspired by Greta, uh, passed a climate emergency resolution, finally. And um, I joined the committee that was constituted by our city council uh, uh, called the Climate Crisis Action Committee. And I will admit to being excited about working with this group of people that is very committed to not just producing a a framework or report, but to actually cause to happen, bold, courageous, actions, advocacy, and adaptation um, to uh, climate change. And then on the other thing I've been working on for a long time of affordable housing is the seaside village uh, in the Pacific Northwest. We've had an influx of wealthy uh, second home buyers or um, uh, vacation rental uh, buyers, you know, who's really, you know, as in so many other communities, this has forced our basically which what we now call essential workers are working class out of their homes, out of their affordable rentals. Um, And so um, we're now working on some really innovative ideas. I've, I've, I've done some ideas with my own house, you know, how to like be able to share space with other people. And now some of my ideas are like maybe going to be embedded in some projects or some plans or some, you know, processes that, that other people can follow. And it's not just, you know, uh, my crazy idea. So I, I'm sort of like, maybe it's the urgency of the, the heat dome or the, the fires or the floods or the storms. I don't know what it is, but since this summer, um, there seems to be, we seem to be sobered. Like, you know, I mean, some people could call it anxious. I don't know what's going on in other people under the surface, but there seems to be a greater will to uh, create the kind of changes that are going to see us through, um, and so I, I don't know what it is, but I've sort of given up my grumpy old lady for a while. And um, you know, I was thinking, like, you know, maybe, maybe we are a nation of neighborhoods. You know, we're, we're, you know, uh, we're, we're national governments, state governments. You know, we have a that infrastructure, but in, you know. When it comes down to it, the change happens in households and neighborhoods. You know, the laws and legislations and, and regulations all affect what people can, people and, and businesses can do, but it lands in neighborhoods. So maybe we're just a, a huge continent of neighborhoods coping with the changes um, and very affected by decisions made. That they have no power over but making the best life they can with uh, with what we have um, And so this also this idea of we're a nation of neighborhoods we're not just a, you know the Supreme Court and all that. Uh, I, I, another theme I'm sort of working on um, is life goes on. you know um, just this idea that you know at, at the end of the day just, people adapt, <laughs> whatever is going on out there. And, and uh, one part of my de-escalating polarization project is, is looking for nuance and uh, the messy, muddly middle in the COVID polarization. And, and one day, uh, trying to think it through, I, I started writing a fable. Um, about a village far away and long ago, grappling with a new plague. And they're polarized as to how to address it, take the medicines from the city and take precautions like a face cloth or it off with holistic pr- health practices or just party on. So two members of the always wide, wise elder circle um, um, end up on opposite ends of the issues. And they cannot solve it, the elder circle can't solve it. So these two people, Bridget and Tom, bring the argument out into public in front of the village to see if they could hash it out together and, and come to some, some higher order understanding. And they fail to find a middle way. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it, that's the story is that they cannot find, uh, the middle way. So the story kind of wrote itself um, including this ending after the elders leave, defeated, and also a young girl named Maisie leads some friends out of the village to live in the wild um, as their alternative. Um, so here's the little end of the story as it wrote itself. And so it went. Some resistors started wearing the cloth because, well, why not? Many cooperators adopted some of Tom's habits because, well, why not? Those who made small changes noticed they didn't get those sniffles that came and went every year. Some went to the city to speak to the makers of the medicines to find out the truth about them. They were quite surprised by what they learned and came back to the village to report. The women's circles considered this new information. Some people still got sick and died, strong as well as weak, young as well as old. Over time, fewer sickened and those who sickened didn't die. Babies were born, new lovers were tossed in the blanket that's a ritual of engagement and married, friendships renewed. News of Bridget's death arrived. One day her heart simply stopped. Some resistors wanted to make something of that but it fell on deaf ears. The people were simply sad. Some of the cooperators whispered that her heart was simply broken. Tom, it seemed, had gone elsewhere, and the council, it was rumored, enjoyed their garden and made face claws, which they sold in the city to buy some sweets. Maisie's team came back once, brown and strong, and then left for their huts in the woods again, never to return. Some children left to join Maisie's camp, and their leaving put a hole in the villagers' hearts. Uh, The holes healed and so it was, and so it was. And I realized that the town actually represents my point of view, that civilizations rise and fall, wars are fought and won or lost and fought again. Devastations roll through, floods, fires, great depressions, ice ages come and recede and the grass of community grows again like Mount St. Helens where I live in Washington state, a wasteland after the volcano blew and now covered in life again. Inside of life goes on is a will to live and live on, a will to live. Is this what is being activated by our existential threats? Perhaps the impetus in my stories of unexpected progress on issues that once were stalled, is this sort of rising up with the vital force from within life itself uh, when, when, when uh, life is threatened. Um, life moves, life adapts. Precious species and communities may not survive, but in the wake of devastation, new life forms emerge, new forests and settlements. It's a mess while it's happening. And I think this defines our time. We have much to endure as the consequences of the fossil fuel era roll over us, but the river of life will find a way. Bezos and Musk may go off and terraform other planets, but we who are left behind will muddle on. Now I think that life goes on is how life operates. It's relational, adaptive, committed with everything else to its own survival, willing to fight if it must, but preferring cooperation, conserving energy. I've watched people rapidly adapt to circumstances. One moment it's tragedy, the next it's just the way it is. A boulder falls in the stream and the water finds its way around. Life goes on, is what is always going right, no matter what. And so as I finished this up, I realized it reminded me of a song that I first heard from a singer called Inya. i I'm not gonna sing it, I'm just gonna read a, f- uh, a few of the stanzas because I'm sure many of you know it. My life goes on in endless song above earth's lamentations. I hear the real though far off hymn that hails a new creation through all the tumult and the strife, I hear its music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul, how can I keep from singing? While well, though the tempest loudly roars, I hear the truth, it liveth. And though the darkness round me close, songs in the night, it giveth so. What could possibly go right? Life itself, thanks. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Postcarbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to a Cher Miller, Amy Burringroot, and Clara Winter of Postcarbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from Frugalityandfreedom.com.